Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. Hey everybody, just one word of joy and deliverance before we go any further. It may seem a little shallow uh, in the addressing of the events of the current time that we all face, uh, but hairdressers are opening soon, so get your appointment in. Um, We are about to be delivered from bad hair. Uh, my wife's done a good job, I think, doing me a little trim because I know the moment I said, hey, your eyes immediately went to look at my head. So I'm very appreciative of that. But uh, get your appointment in, folks, and uh, rejoice in the deliverance. Now, I fully realise that uh, with the things that I'm saying at this present time, I have become a disappointment to some and uh, an irrelevance to others. Uh, but this is me. And uh, what you see is what you get. And I want to give another little commentary um, with a little Bible on where we are and hopefully uh, where we need to head. Um, Depending on how we are wired, we all want others to share our passion. Uh, We passionately cannot understand why they don't. Uh, Even Jesus got frustrated over this this point when uh, recorded in John 14 verse 9. uh, He turns to one of his followers, Philip, and says, uh, Have I been with you so long uh, and yet you have not known me? It's a frustration I share with Jesus at times. Um, But I want you to get this point that that it depends how we are wired. Depending on how we're wired, we, we, we want others to share our passion and passionately cannot understand when they don't. I, I see several things at the moment which give me uh, cause for concern. <clears throat> There's a whole lot of virtue signalling going on. Uh, now, I have to admit, uh, generationally, for, for the likes of me and, and, and those of a similar <clears throat> age... <clears throat> We are having to uh, um, educate ourselves to the existence of a whole series of uh, comments and words and phrases which which we were never familiar with, which were <clears throat> non-existent in our growing up. And, and believe me or not, we face many of the challenges and issues that, that are being faced right now. But virtue signalling is one of the the things that uh, has come up where you um, <clears throat> you act uh, about something that is going on, but what you're doing within it is is in essence trying to express and uh, inflate uh, your own sense of virtue, and I think. You know, this this can tend to be a statement that's that that's labelled at only one group. When actually, I think it probably applies across all of us, 
in 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 the varying different and opposite understandings and expressions to the challenges that we face, whether it was Brexit and a, a national um, uh, election, uh, or whether it's the current um, the current situation of uh, racism and Black Lives Matter, uh, which is extremely important, as I've already addressed in my last talk. Um, but I'm not sure uh, among the virtue signalling from all sides, uh, what's ego? Uh, that's something done to make oneself feel good. And uh, what's soul? Which is to reintegrate all things to the purity of their source. I'm just not sure in the virtue signalling how much is ego and how much is, is soul. Uh, I'm not even sure in my own uh, field of Christianity and ministry um, how much of what has been done in many areas has been ego and how much has been soul. I know that many things were done and and expressed in order to make oneself feel good, which should put it into the realm of ego. Um, but also there were others, and I hope this is where we live, that uh, if we live from soul, it's the desire to reintegrate all things to the purity of their source. And that must be must be where we sit uh, and don't virtue signal, but live in that realm of soul. Now, I'll say a little later, also the realm of spirit. Um, there's a difference between an ego need and a soul need, and we all need to address that as we uh, make our decisions about what we will speak for, speak out against, uh, campaign for, campaign against. Uh, too much of Christianity's doctrinal interpretation, I believe, is based on ego rather than soul. So I'm being very self-critical in 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 the context of how I examine uh, these elements. See, life is a pilgrimage. And some of you are, in all honesty, really only just starting. Uh, so I would say this to you, be idealistic by all means, but don't be dualistic in your idealism. In thinking that the world and the works of its inhabitants can be merely divided into right and wrong, good and evil, either or, in or out, black or white, master or slave, us and them, win and lose, reward and punish, heaven and hell, life and people are much more complex than that. See, spirit won't allow you to do that. I do believe the presence of God's spirit in any of us, in all of us, if we allow it, to be what it is, won't allow you to do that, to be dualistic in your idealism. Remember the, the perichoresis that I talked about um, in the talk before last, the, the sacred dance. That, that's what saves us from self as an isolated identity and society from descending into the wrong kind of human race. Have you ever wondered why do we call it the human race. A, a ra race to what? Uh, it's interesting that in the English language we, we have two meanings for the word race. The, the, the one that, that defines race as a group uh, sharing the same physical or social qualities and I'm sure that uh, that's what we want across all creeds and colours and cultures. 
race, a group defined as sharing the same physical or social qualities. But in our English language, we also use race, the word race, as expressed in a competition to see who can win. This is my problem. When we get confused with the, with the challenges of the human race uh, to develop the space and the goodness where we have the same physical and social qualities uh, and and race as a competition to see who can win becomes very confused and and in essence one could say that many of the elements of the arguments of racism and supremacy come because of those those issues that we have confused those two words. Isn't it sad that we have the word competition and we have the word win? Whenever competition and win come into the uh, equation, we are not going to ever accomplish the sharing of the same, okay? We just can't. Now, having said that, uh, one of my favourite movies is uh, is Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby, and uh, Ricky's dad speaks a famous line in the movie um, when he says, um, uh, if, you ain't, if you ain't first, you're last. Uh, and then when Ricky challenges him and says, I've lived my whole life by that criteria, his dad says, I'll use his words, hell boy, I was high when I said that. What a stupid thing. You know, you can be second, you can be third, you can be fourth, you can even be fifth. But you see, when we confuse and don't allow the same, the sameness to invade all of us and to work for and towards that sameness, that integration. Uh, the word race changes from an attempt to establish the sameness and it slides into the competition to see who can win from all sides. Um, interesting, exciting though it may be, uh, um, a race is surely mostly an exercise in pointlessness. You know, we get on a track, we have a start line, we have a finish line. Somebody wins, somebody sets a world record. Wonderful. But it's surely mostly an exercise in pointlessness. I mean, it has achieved what? Uh, except where it isn't an exercise in pointlessness. And I'm going to sound like, the, um, uh, like Boris and the Brexit rules here. Go out. Don't go out. Don't go out except if you need to go out when you can go out, but stay at home. Don't get sad. I sound like that, don't I? Uh, so if, it, if, if a race is, 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 as we see it, often surely mostly an exercise in pointlessness, it only is except where it isn't. What I mean by that is like in a race for a cure for cancer. Uh, I'll give you that one. I'll accept that one. I'm just trying to give an illustration of, of the two kinds um, of, uh, of, of a race. I'll give you that one. Um, you know, it reminds me of the Monty Python's uh, 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 sketch as well, where uh, in the movie where um, uh, where the question is, "What have the Romans ever done for us?" Uh, you should watch it on YouTube. It's brilliant. Uh, nothing except aqueducts uh, and uh, hygiene and bathing and roads. And we've got to be careful how we consider some of these things. Anyway, uh, with the spirit there comes a whole new set of values, objectives, and motives. So when we get out of that dualistic, that binary, right, wrong, good, evil, in, out, black, white 
thing. If we can get past that uh, with the spirit, because it, 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 it's to do with that Trinitarian thinking, there comes a whole new set of values, objectives and motives, like forgiveness and reconciliation and integration, um, uh, as Nelson Mandela uh, clarified and qualified. It's interesting that Nelson Mandela became most effective when he shifted from a binary dualistic view, right, wrong, good, evil, uh, in, out, you know, uh, um, to a Trinitarian one where he brought spirit into the equation and that then, that then changed his whole perspective. And I think uh, we would have to agree that uh, uh, Mandela was, has probably been in, in my lifetime and in our lifetime the most uh, successful at beginning to dismantle a system in the apartheid system and to integrate. And uh, sadly, that that has not been maintained, I don't think, to the same degree and with the same spirit that Mandela introduced in South Africa. But nevertheless, he, he, he was a great example of what is necessary to get that process working properly. Um, and it may have taken 27 years in prison to reveal that. So, you know, take from that what you, what you will. See, th there's an inherent and present danger which lurks within the need to categorise people. Uh, I've always been um, inspired to think by a verse in the book of Revelation in the Bible... Uh, which is in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And I'm just going to cut the bits out that helps us. Um, it, it talks about uh, talks about the accuser. I mean, it's referring to a figure of the devil, um, Satan, the accuser. It means accuser. Um, the accuser who accuses day and night has been cast down. This This was the message. Now, that word that's translated accuser there is the word kategoros in Greek. Now, I'll, I'll just give you a second to guess what English word you might think we translated from Kategoros. Okay, have you got it? To categorise. Okay, there's an inerrant and present danger that lurks within the need to categorise people in any way, in any shape, in any form, uh, to categorise. And um, we must be conscious and aware... Um, that any any attitude that categorizes people is going to lead us down a path that ultimately it's going to need to be cast down if we are going to find that place of love and acceptance and 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 integration. So none of us should be categorizing anybody really. Now that doesn't mean we don't recognize things that need to be dealt with, but once we begin to put people into rigid categories. Uh, we get into all kinds of difficulty, which can only take us back to binary, dualistic thinking. Who's right? Who's wrong? Of course, uh, what we do then is that is why we treat some people violently. We kill, we, 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 we destroy, whatever, whatever. Um, now, what I would also say at this time is that we should not interpret the events of the past through the lens of the present. Um, when we do, there is rarely an event or personality that doesn't escape our judgment in some way. Um, I 
have had to learn that in the context that uh, there are some issues I have to deal with as a public speaker, and particularly in the context of of expressing my faith and journey uh, in in church life and my spiritual journey and pilgrimage, where I refer, for example, to my own parents, my mother, my father, who I love very dearly. They were loving parents, sincere parents. Uh, they were gripped by a conviction about the love of God and the life of God and 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 elements surrounding that for which I am very appreciative they they I think they raised me well uh, but I'm also aware that that when I come to a point where I may criticize some of their stances or conclusions uh, as with others who've been mentors to me in the past that I might criticize and disagree with their conclusions uh uh what I would say is that I then have to come to that statement and not in, interpret it, uh, the events of them through the lens of the present. You know, to, to, to judge or measure why they did what they did in the way that they did through the lens that I currently have. I can comment about it, but I must not interpret those events uh, through the lens of the present because uh, you just can't. I mean... You know, let's forget just recent history. You go back through the whole of history and you cannot interpret the events of the past through the lens of the present. You have to interpret them through their own environment. So there are some things happening now, uh, even in our own nation, where we are trying to interpret the events of the past through the lens of the present. And, and we may highlight things, but we have to bear in mind this principle when we do it, because if we do that, there's rarely an event or a personality that doesn't escape our judgment in some way. And then we become those who judge. The danger is that we take a very camouflaged, self-righteous view that says, if I'd lived then, I would not have had slaves. I would not have supported X. If I'd lived then, I wouldn't have wanted Jesus crucifying. And it's a, it's a very camouflaged self-righteous view because none of us know, none of us can tell, none of us can step back there when we wouldn't have had the knowledge we have now or the experiences of now and the challenges of now and the knowledge of now. We wouldn't have had it. We would have been in a a more compromised position in that respect of history, but we would have just known what we knew then. So there are some things we would have accepted as norm and probably not questioned them if we were living in that environment. So it's all right to evaluate and assess um, in the present and determine how we think we should respond in the present, but we should not interpret the events of the past through the lens of the present, if I'd lived then, I would not have. Um, you know, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is a prime example, okay? Uh, just days before his crucifixion, the crowd were saying that they were welcoming, welcoming him into Jerusalem, throwing palm leaves, which was a cultural thing at that time, paving his way, declaring him their great Messiah, their great hero, uh, and then a few days later, they were shouting in a baying crowd in a demonstration saying, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us and and rather release to us the thief and, and the terrorist Barabbas 
then give us back this guy, Jesus, you know, for what? For what had he done? What I'm just trying to show you is that if I had lived then, I might think, oh, I would have been part of the crowd who consistently would have said, no, he's an innocent man, let him go. But I don't know that and I can't know that. And I see from the history of the crucifixion that we can all get caught along with something and then we develop this camouflage self-righteousness. If I had been there, I wouldn't. Well, examine your heart. Examine your heart about those things. Now, I may not know much about many things, but one thing I do know is that we love having an enemy. You know, we like to find an enemy in our conversation. We like to find an enemy. We've got to be fighting. We, we want to fight. So we've got to pin the blame on somebody or something. And we can then focus our energies on that enemy. We find it difficult if we don't have an enemy to focus our energy and focus our attention and therefore develop our viewpoints. Um, so, so, so we love having an enemy. If, if, if we can help that become a common enemy, i.e. if we can get everybody else on board with, hey, this is not just an issue, this is an enemy, uh, then all the better. It, see, having a common enemy galvanizes the group in opposition. Um, and we feel better for the fight. Listen, I, I've grown up all my life in the Christian church where I have watched this, you know, uh, sin is our enemy. So we all, when, when we made sin our enemy, we were all common. The songs we sung, the way we responded, uh, sin was our common enemy. We had a purpose. Sin was our enemy. Uh, the devil, the devil was our enemy. And so there are people still locked into that. The thing that's called spiritual warfare is simply a galvanizing of people around a common enemy, uh, which has more to do, I think, with uh, a wrong understanding of of uh, the emp empirical process of gladiatorial combat in the arena than it actually does with the spirit of Christ and how we really change the world. Um, so just beware of that. We, we don't tend to function well without a common enemy. Something inside us loves to find an enemy to fight. Um, but Jesus didn't say, love having an enemy. He said, love your enemy. See, that, that's really, really hard. Especially if we only live in dualistic binary thinking. Well, he's wrong. I'm right. They're out. I'm in. He's black. I'm white. He's white. I'm black. You know, if we only live in that realm, it, it, it's just so hard that we can barely, barely even imagine accomplishing it. It's not that Jesus said, love having an enemy. Jesus said, love your enemy. Note that this very statement of Jesus makes room for the reality of the real or imagined perception of an enemy. So Jesus is not saying there will not be things that you see as an enemy or want to address as an enemy. See, if he says, love your enemy, then he is acknowledging by that very statement that he's making room for the reality and the real or imagined perception of an enemy. It's, it's a truth. We, we all live in that space and, and we have those things and those people um, and those systems. But, but it gives us the only effective way of long-lasting healing and change. And that is by love. Not loving having an enemy, but loving your enemy. It will change 
your spirit. If you, if you liken the challenge that we face to a man's diseased prostate gland, you, you can't easily excise the offending gland without damaging the nerves that go by and through the area and risking rendering the patient impotent and incontinent. Now, you might say, well, that's a strange example to use about the current situation and how we, how we heal it. And uh, for some of you, you might find it highly inappropriate. You might be in that age group. Uh, some of you younger ones won't, you know, won't turn a hair with what I'm about to say. Uh, because when that happens, you see, that we leave the patient, because, because we've not appreciated... Um, that it's not easy to exercise, excise that offending gland without damaging the nerves that go by and through the area without risking rendering the patient impotent and incontinent, then, then we miss the fact that if we don't handle this right, we leave the patient, we leave the sufferer, we leave the situation impotent and incontinent, which without being offensive, let me put it this way, it means that then that society, that person, uh, that situation can no longer rise to the occasion. Yeah, do you get it? Can no longer rise to the occasion and cannot retain the refreshing water of life without leaking in stinky ways. So, so we've got to make sure we understand that the complexity of excising this problem needs a gentle hand. It needs a considerate heart. It needs to approach with much love and kindness. Most like the idea of love, but don't really want what it requires that we lay down. So we talk love and then don't act that love. See, this, this is probably the most, possibly, probably, maybe the most important thing that I will say to you today. But I mean it sincerely, and I think if you can take this on board, it will really help to direct your, your spirit, heart, belief, action. Sometimes you've just got to forgive reality for what it is. Reality is what it is. You cannot change that reality. And sometimes, in order to move forward, sometimes you've just got to forgive reality for what it is, and that's where you must start. Okay, Not by trying to undo that reality, which you can't, but you've got to forgive reality for what it is, and that's where you must start. And then you sow. You sow with diligence. You sow with love. You sow with generosity of spirit. You sow with understanding. You sow with hope. Now, quoting comments from the words of Jesus in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, much of our seed will fall on the trod down path. A lot of it will get eaten by the birds. The thorn bushes by the edge will choke some of it. The stony places will prevent some of it taking root, but some will find good soil. And good soil always allows the seed to multiply exponentially. And when that happens, nobody's attention is on the path, the thorns or the rocks. All eyes see the harvest and long to recreate it. That's the answer 
to the situation that we find ourselves in if we will embrace it and I have to believe this for myself in what I'm passionate about in uh, passionate about in why we change the rock to Q. Mm. One thing I learned from the Mormon migration to the Great Salt Lake Valley is that it can sometimes be a really arduous journey fraught with unexpected challenges and dangers to get to where your heart has already gone. One thing I would ask of all, just make sure your heart goes with the soul, not the ego, and the spirit, not just the senses. There's another verse I'll just bring to you, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is a classic in the New Testament of Paul. The fruit of the spirit, that's what we want in this, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, a faithfulness, those are the things that are the fruit of the spirit, not of binary thinking, not of dualistic thinking, but of spirit thinking, that when they are released, uh, bring the changes that I think people like uh, Nelson Mandela understood and, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So let me finish with some words from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today. How often, are our, how often are our lives characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds? Nobody's against the deeds. Remember what we said, how we express our passion. And, uh, and I remind you of, of what we said about that, that, um, that be idealistic by all means, but don't be dualistic in your idealism. Listen to the words of Martin Luther King. How long, how often our lives are characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. Jesus affirmed a higher law from the cross. He knew that an eye for an eye would leave everybody blind. He did not seek to overcome evil with evil. He overcame evil with good. What a magnificent lesson. Generations will rise and fall. Men will continue to worship the God of revenge and bow before the altar of retaliation. But ever and again, this noble lesson of Calvary will be a nagging reminder that only goodness can drive out evil. And he said this, talking about, about those around the cross and it applies to us. They know blindness was their trouble. Enlightenment was their need. This tragic blindness expresses itself in many ominous ways in our own day. Some men feel that war is the answer to the problems of the world. Sincerity and conscientiousness in themselves are not enough. Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. The church must urge men to be kind-hearted and sincere. In your passion, be kind-hearted, be sincere, sow the seeds, reject the violence, and let love be at the centre of all we do, even to the extent of loving our enemies. I love you, I bless you, we'll catch you again another time. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash QChurchYork. 
We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.